our goal this morning is to cover the story of the fall of man, and so in so doing, we'll be looking to cover all of Genesis 3 this morning. And as we prepare our hearts for that, let's begin by reading some of our text this morning, picking it up at the very end of Genesis 2, verse 25, and reading through 3-7. There we read these words. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree? In the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Have you ever, in the midst of going through some sort of disappointment, maybe you've lost a game, did poorly on a test, or are suffering through one of life's many trials, have, have you ever received the sort of counsel from someone that goes along the lines of, of something like, it's okay, you'll get them next time, or you're, you'll definitely do better, next game, next test? Or in the same way, have you ever heard Similarly, unhelpful advice that tends to go to the opposite end of that spectrum and doesn't insist on some Pollyanna attitude, but rather just speaks to the meaninglessness of everything. And instead of saying, you'll get them next time, they say things like, well, that's just the way life is. And in both cases, the people using these sayings, and perhaps some of us in here have used these sayings, are attempting to encourage the person to simply pick up and move on. Get over it. Because either we believe things are definitely going to get better, or we believe that things just are always terrible. Many people's words of advice in the midst of disappointment tend to fall on one of those two spectrums. And if you've ever heard those words, you understand just how unhelpful both sayings tend to be. For one, all of us recognize that things in certain circumstances may actually not get better at all. You might be terrible at whatever game you just lost. And so you might lose every other game you have. Or you might not study again, and in that case, you will probably fail yet another test. So being told that things will definitely be better next time doesn't necessarily mean anything if it's not tied to to anything concrete. In the same way, while we naturally understand that there is suffering, and, and suffering is always going to be around, we're equally unhelped and annoyed by that sort of advice that insists upon the belief that life is meaningless, that life is unfair, that life is harsh, so get on with it. Regardless of where we stand in the midst of our disappointment, we as humanity are plagued by this nagging belief that disappointment will continue and that we can't quite get past it. And so as such, we're annoyed by that baseless optimism. Yet at the same time, while we acknowledge the reality of suffering, 
We are, e- we are also annoyed and frustrated by that belief that, well, this is just the way life is. Things will never get better because we innately believe, well, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Surely it can get better. Surely justice means something. Love means something. Surely things were not intended to be this way. We all believe this inherently. We know life is difficult, but we also know that life should be better than what we experience. And the question is, why? Why do we believe that? And why is it then that those baseless, baseless observations that either revolve around optimism or nihilism, why is it that they're so unhelpful? Well, the answer to all those questions really lies in Genesis 3. For in Genesis 3, we're given the reason why suffering exists. We're given the reason why we acknowledge suffering exists and we're given a realization that the darkness is in fact real. And so as we observe Genesis 3, we'll see truths regarding that darkness. And yet even in the midst of that darkness, we are given for the first time the glimmer of hope that still exists amongst all of us. We're given the reason why man believes that things should be better because we're given where that hope originates as well. My hope as we examine this text then is that all of us, particularly as believers, might be rescued from that overly simplistic worldview that just tells people, don't worry, things are going to get better, or just insists on telling people, well, the world's unfair, so get over it. My prayer is that we might walk away with a realistic understanding and appreciation of the sin that envelops us, of the darkness that characterizes so much of this life, In the midst of understanding that darkness, I pray we also might walk away with that constantly true statement regarding the glorious light of God as well. For it is only when we understand both that darkness and light that we can have a fuller appreciation of who we are and can be reminded of what it means to be of help to society around us. With that being said, let me go and open this up in a word of prayer. And we'll start delving into that darkness and observing timeless truths regarding both sin and God's glory. Pray with me if you will. Father in heaven, as we pick up the text again today, we enter into a story that yet again may be incredibly familiar to many of us here. And as is always the case when a story is familiar, it is so easy to check out. It's so easy to assume that we know everything that's to be revealed here, and so our mind begins to wander. But God, I pray that might not be the case this morning. For those of us who have read this story dozens of times, God, I pray that you might renew our fascination in it. Might we see the absolute terror of Genesis 3. Might we shudder as we realize once again how dark things are. And as we are reminded why things are so dark. But just as we shudder at that, Lord, might we ultimately respond with a proper sense of reverence and appreciation for you. Might we see your glorious light in a way that we've never seen it before, in a way we've never appreciated it fully before. And as a result of all of this, God, might we walk away with a much deeper appreciation both of the disease of sin, the terror it causes, but also a deeper appreciation of your glorious love and grace. As always, I pray for those in here who do not yet know you, God, I pray that for the first time they might understand why the world is such a dark place. I pray that for the first time they might understand that they are not alone in the darkness that there is help offered. But I pray that for the first time they understand that help can only come through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you rescue them from the darkness today. 
God, bless our time now. Might it be spent in a way that's glorifying to you, edifying to all of us, God, and ultimately glorifying to your son, Jesus, who is our light, who is our salvation, who is our only hope in returning to paradise. It is in his name we pray all these things, amen. As our story picks up in Genesis 3, it picks up in the middle of paradise. Of course, if you were with us a month ago while we were still in Genesis 1 and 2, you remember how glorious and beautiful life was in the Garden of Eden. The first man, Adam, and the helper, the woman, had everything they possibly could ever need or want. They were set up to live out their calling given to them by the Creator, that calling to expand the garden, that calling to worship Him, to make more image bearers and to share God's glory throughout all of creation. But in the midst of that paradise, we enter into a new chapter. In that new chapter, we see the introduction to a new character in our story. That character is the serpent. And as we enter into this new chapter, we immediately come to the first point today, that point regarding sin. Specifically, the fact that sin is always deceptively foolish. And we see that deception on full display in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And so follow along with me, if you will, as we see the serpent and see this deception play out. There we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the days you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good for evil, and knowing good and evil. And we'll stop there for the moment. To the original audience reading the story, the introduction of the serpent would have, would have brought with it great weight, great anticipation, great foreboding for serpents in that ancient Near East as creatures carried with them a great deal of a symbolic significance. You read throughout the Old Testament as well as other ancient Near Eastern texts and you see serpents can, can be used to represent a great number of things. It's used in scripture for evil, for craftiness, as we'll see here. But it's also used in other passages, like Numbers, to speak of, of life. Same thing comes into being in other ancient Near Eastern texts, where serpents are used as symbols of shrewdness, for evil, for life, for death. Regardless of what they represent in any given story, then, the introduction to a serpent would have brought with it great meaning, great anticipation. We see this serpent... And Genesis 3 was indeed a serpent. He was a creature created by God. But as the story unfolds, we quickly must understand that the serpent really isn't the main character here. That is to say, the deceiver that is on display isn't a snake so much as it's the, the person, the force behind the snake. We quickly see that the serpent is ultimately just a mouthpiece for someone far more sinister, far more wicked. That someone, that something, as many of you already know, is the serpent, the deceiver. It is Satan. We know that not so much from Genesis 3, but, but from the rest of Scripture. For as it unfolds, we see Satan time and time again displayed and, and described as this great deceiver. You can read for yourselves the fall of Satan, a former angel, and passages like Isaiah. Isaiah 14 speaks of his fall. 
But more importantly, for the sake of our text this morning, it's important to, to consider other texts like John 8, 44. If you read in John 8, 44, you see Jesus referred to Satan as the liar, as the deceiver. And speaking of Satan, Jesus says, he has been a murderer from the beginning. No doubt referring to his own fall, but also to Genesis 3. Most clearly, in reference to Genesis 3, we can read in passages like Revelation 12, 9, which speaks of Satan being that ancient serpent, that serpent of old, who was at the heart of this story of man's fall, of man's first sin. From the outset then, it's vitally important to understand as the reader that when we read of the serpent, we must see that there is something far more sinister at play than just a creature interacting with humanity. We see Satan for the first time doing what Satan always does. Desperately trying to subvert the will and order of God by deceiving the people of God. By bringing pain into God's perfect and beautiful creation. And as he attempts to do this, we see Satan's deception begin to really unfold in verse 2, or verse 1 rather. And we see that from the outset, the deception of the deceiver is, is so crafty. And it's crafty, and it's really seen in, in how subtle Satan is with these first words spoken to the helper, to woman. For again, look at verse 1 and, and see this, this clever question that he brings to her. For he comes to the woman and says, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? At first glance, this question might seem relatively harmless. And if you're wanting to believe the best about Satan, which I never suggest you do, you might say, well, Satan's just looking for some clarification. He wants to, to figure out exactly what God has said. But of course, we understand that's not Satan's ploy. That's not his M.O. No, as you observe this question a little more carefully, you see that, that even in these few words, he's immediately trying to create this, this sense of separation. He's immediately challenging the authority of God, both by going to the helper rather than Adam, but also in the way he phrases this question. You see that subtle separation begin, even in the way he refers to God, for he says, indeed, has God said this is very subtle, but if you read through the first couple chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, you see that very frequently when God speaks to Adam and to the first woman, who will soon be named Eve, the name that Moses uses to describe God is not simply God, but the Lord God. Genesis 1 and 2, he refers to God as the Lord God time and time again, particularly in reference to his relationship to Adam and Eve, and there's reason for that. Because those two names together speak both to God broadly as the God of creation, but they also speak to God of the covenant. Again, you think of the original audience here would have been Israel, the Hebrew people. And so when they hear Lord, when they hear this language, they're thinking of that covenantal relationship. When Satan approaches the woman, however, how does he refer to God? It's, it's just that broader sense. He's simply the creator. He's simply the rule giver. And even when he speaks of the rules, you also see that Satan is subtly shifting, is, is redefining the terms, isn't he? For Satan asks, has God indeed said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now Satan understands what the command was. And so Satan no doubt understands that he is 
changing the wording in a very important way. For if you read back in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God does not couch this command in such immediately negative terms. Turn with me, if you will, back to Genesis 2 and verse 16. There we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day, of it, from the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When God gives the command, he doesn't begin with the negative, but with the positive. He immediately points to the abundance of provision he's given humanity, and he says, you may eat freely from all the trees except this one. When Satan approaches the woman, however, what is his entire focus? It's entirely on the negative. It's entirely on, what is God keeping away from you? Did God really say you can't do something? He's redefining the terms. He's redefining the debate. He does so subtly. And he does so in a way that it seems clear from the woman's response does not immediately raise those red flags. We see that fact in the way that the woman responds. For the woman responds in turn. She, in essence, embraces these redefined terms. She's willing to engage with the serpent, willing to, in essence, try to defend God's honor, but she does so while using this phrasing of God's negative laws. Upon taking that bait, Satan then drops all sense of subtlety, and as we come back to his second statement in verse 4, we see here the serpent really strikes, makes his motivations clear. For in verse 4, the serpent responds to the woman and says, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan here sees that his mark has taken the bait. And he strikes with this outright blatant accusation that, that impugns both the knowledge of God, but more importantly, it impugns the motivation of God, it, it questions his heart. For as the serpent corrects this supposed threat of death, what does he say is the reason why God doesn't want man from eating from that particular tree? Because God wants all the glory for himself. The only reason why God is taking that away from you is because he knows once you eat of it, you'll become just like him. God is holding you back from your full potential, woman. God is keeping you down. And for the first time, we see the deceiver plant this seed in the mind of man. The seed that suggests you can have paradise apart from God. You creature can have glory apart from God. You creature can receive all of this abundance, all this love, all this beauty, and you can do it all if you simply are willing to cast off those chains. If you're simply willing to assert your own personal dominance. Ultimately, this is what's at the heart of, of every sin, this desire to cast off the chains of God, this desire to, to claim autonomy, to claim complete independence. We see the same sort of language used in Psalm 2 when the psalmist describes the nations being in an uproar. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2, or 1 through 3, the psalmist uses language and says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. From the very beginning, we see that the primary deception that Satan always attempts to give us is that deception that tells us that we can have everything we possibly could ever need and we can have it apart from dependence upon God. It's not a lengthy argument. It's not all that complex. But with those simple words, Satan has done all that he needs to do. And tragically, having planted that seed, we see the sin take root. And we see it sprout anew in verse 6. There we read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Here in these few moments, you see this, this shift in belief that has occurred in the woman's mind. Here she turns away from the serpent and, and she sees the fruit, fruit that she had no doubt looked upon countless times before, but fruit that suddenly took on a new shine. And suddenly when she observes this fruit, it is no longer that which is forbidden. It's enticing. It is beautiful. It is desirable. She no doubt is wondering what the taste must be like and she sees it, perhaps most damning of all, as being good to make one wise. Here, even before eating, you see the woman is, is already taking the place of God. For she is now declaring what is good, what is fulfilling. She is now using the language that was once reserved only for God as he judged his creation. And she is now judging it to be good for something entirely different. It's important to note the reason why she disobeys, the reason why she steps through, for in this language, in verse 6, we see just how deceived she is. For she does not hear Satan say, do not worship God, worship yourself. She's not looking at the fruit and saying, I deserve to be God necessarily, at least in those blunt terms. She sees it as beautiful, she sees it as good, she sees it as tasty. And it is in that light of the deception that she takes of the fruit and that she eats and that she gives to her husband and he also eats. It is argued by some that the disobedience of Adam is even more damning. For Adam does not appear to be fully deceived here. Adam was not directly addressed necessarily by the serpent. Adam just listens to the voice of his his wife and takes it. Adam's disobedience seems arguably even more willful more shameful. But in both cases, even if that deception is not quite as strong in Adam's mind, you see the same deception is ultimately at work. It's that deception of taking that which is clearly sinful, redefining it, and justifying it for the sake of making yourself wise, for the sake of making yourself better. It's a tragic, tragic decision, of course. And it's one that we read of today, and we say, how could they be so foolish? And yet... We see that same path taken countless times, don't we? For as we read through the rest of Scripture, we see the same path taken by humanity. You see Abraham listen to the voice of his wife and do that which is so obviously sinful. You see King David, that man after God's own heart, do that which is so blatantly wicked and yet do it because he's king and that's what kings do. You come to the New Testament and you look at people like Peter. 
Peter who heard the words of Christ, who understood the necessity of Christ's crucifixion, and yet Peter who continually still tries to listen to the voice of the world and use the, the tools, the means of the world, violence. And he does this, no doubt believing it is what is best. Time and time again, men and women of old have followed down the same path, and time and time again, all of us do the same thing. We scoff at the sins of others, and we say how foolish that person is to, to redefine God's terms and to fall into sin. But we do the same thing. You can see this pattern, of course, on full display in our world. It doesn't take a great deal of intelligence to see how humanity recouches, redefines what God has clearly made true in his word. You see in the ways that immorality is, is justified by our culture. Our society uses words like love and passion. They'll say things like the heart wants the, what the heart wants what the heart wants. And they'll use these cliche sayings, these words that sound good, to justify selfish, immoral behavior. They do it because they believe if you don't follow through with that which is lovely, well then it will destroy your insides. Be true to yourself, they say. And they do that which is shameful. They redefine marriage. They redefine gender. And they think this, this will bring us happiness. And we as Christians, of course, sit back and we rightly say, no, that is, that is shameful. No, that will only hurt you. That will destroy you. And while we are correct in saying that, we also are just as guilty of redefining our own sins, aren't we? For we know that the Bible commands us not to gossip or slander, but somehow we think if we do it on Facebook, it's okay. We share a, a news story that's just slanderous, that just obliterates the reputation of someone, and we think that's okay because we're just sharing something we read that we thought was interesting. Right? We... we bash our, our spouses to our friends. We speak horribly of them, but that's just because that's what people do. And again, I'm just venting, so, you know, it's, it's excusable. We, we use words like independence and liberty to excuse a, a refusal to submit to the authority that God's put over us. So oftentimes, we do this as humanity. We bully and we slander and we lie, we cheat, we do all these things, but when we do it, it's okay. We couch it in other terms that are more desirable, more respectable. And we think somehow that excuses it. Somehow it's justified in that moment because in order to get ahead, this is just the rule of the game. This is how you do it. But every time we do that, we look just as foolish as Adam and Eve do in the garden. And we're falling into that same misdirection of Satan that humanity has always fallen into. We walk that path believing it will bring us true happiness. But of course, as we continue to go on the story, and as we no doubt already understand, happiness is never the result of sin, is it? Regardless of how effective you are at couching your sin in, in desirable terms, regardless of how justifiable it might look in your eyes, your sin, our sin, is always absolutely destructive. You see that destruction on full display in, in verses 7 all the way through verse 19. But we begin by looking at that destruction and its most immediate effects in verses 7 through 13. Follow along with me if you will. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. We'll stop there. Can you imagine the absolute horror that must have come over the minds of Adam and the first woman here? For the second they eat that fruit, what do they expect to happen? They expect their eyes to be opened. And they expect to see glory. They expect to feel pleasure. They expect to be like God. But instead, what is the only thing they see? Their nakedness. That which was already true. And yet, in this moment as they see it for the first time, what is their response? Are they like gods amongst the paradise? No, They're like children who are ashamed of themselves because they realize they've done something horribly wrong. Indeed, that shame is is that immediate effect of the sin. That shame, which author and counselor Ed Welch defines in this way, he says shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. When you feel ashamed, you feel exposed and humiliated. We see that humiliation on full display with Adam and Eve here, don't we? For they eat of the fruit, their eyes are open, and immediately what do they do? They they run to hide themselves. They desperately try to cover themselves, and they do something, of course, that cannot possibly cover themselves, that cannot possibly remove the shame, and yet they do that which they hope will remove this new horrible feeling that, that envelops them. It's a feeling that was new to Adam and Eve. But it's a feeling, tragically, that is familiar to every single one of us. For all of us have felt this, that sting of humiliation, that sting of feeling dirty, unapproachable, unlovable, whether it's because of something we've done that we are deeply embarrassed by or something that that other people have done to us. And it's that feeling that, that we are deeply exposed and we just feel like everyone that looks at us sees it. They see that filth. They see how unacceptable and unholy we are. As we feel that way, we think of language and passages like Isaiah. Isaiah 64, describing this plight of humanity. The prophet says this in Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf. All our iniquities like the wind take us away. This feeling of shame was new to Adam and Eve, but it was something that would become a regular theme to the rest of Scripture. For we see this language of uncleanliness, this language of of that which takes away holiness, that which removes us from the presence of God time and time again in the Old Testament, time and time again in the New Testament. And indeed, today we see the shame on full display in our culture. For a number of years, I had the great pleasure of serving as a youth pastor back in Colorado. And regularly I would hear, 
um, adults speak ill of youth and talk about how shameless they are. And I understood where they were coming from. It certainly appeared to be the case based on what you can observe. But adults, please let me assure you that the youth of today are not shameless. They are weighed down horribly by the constant feeling of shame. This is the fruit of social media. It exists to constantly tell the youth of today that they are not good enough, they are not smart enough, they are not pretty enough. It exists to shame them and thinking they must change, something inside of them must change or they are not worthy of culture's acceptance. Shame is nothing new and shame is certainly never going away. It was found in the garden and it continues to be experienced today, day by day, perhaps something some of you feel even at this moment. Tragically, it was not the only immediate effect of sin. For in addition to this personal shame, there's this introduction of, of interpersonal conflict. The relationships that were once beautiful and harmonious are now broken in verses 7 through 13. We see this both when it comes to man's relationship with God, but also man's relationship with other humans, specifically man and the woman, and ultimately between man and nature. Most foundationally, importantly, we see this conflict between man and God. For a fall along again in verses, or beginning in verse 8, we read, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. This God who had created them, this God that they only knew as their good and loving creator, arrives and they are terrified. There is a newfound brokenness that defines their existence. And as if that terror wasn't enough, we see it come up again in the dialogue. For in verse 9, we read, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to, be, to me, she gave, she, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Again, it's easy to read the language of Adam, the response he gives to God. as laughable, right? This, this idea that he could somehow justify his sin as if he could still hold on to paradise by shifting the blame to everyone else. And I think a lot of us have, have spoken of, or at least have heard this passage taught as a sort of joke. For we see Adam desperately trying to shift the blame from anyone and everyone except himself. And yet, as we examine this language, we must see how tragic this blame game was. For in response to the question of why have you done this, Adam first blames Eve, and then he blames God. And even in blaming Eve, we see this deep tragedy for just a few verses ago in chapter 2 how did Adam see Eve how did he first respond to this beautiful new creation oh when he first saw her in verse 23 of chapter 2 he said this is now bone of my bone flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman and as I referenced back then this this is poetry this is beautiful this is love yet the second he falls into sin this perfect creature that once completed him, is now the bane of his existence. She is an annoyance. She is holding him back. And not only that, it is the God, the creator who made Eve, that ultimately is to blame for this. When confronted upon this sin, upon this deception, Eve also is not innocent. 
For instead of accepting the blame, who does she blame? She blames the serpent. She blames creation. In essence, she's also still blaming God, although not quite as blatantly. Both Adam and Eve then, in a desperate attempt to defend themselves, are are desperately cutting themselves off from any and every other relationship that once defined them. They're willingly cutting themselves off from God, willingly dividing their own relationship, willingly trying to separate themselves from the creation that they are to take care of. They do so out of this desperate sense of shame and guilt. And yet again, we see in their desperation a pattern that is all too familiar to every single one of us. For this is what we do, isn't it? Men. How many of us in the midst of our frustrations, whether it's frustrations over finances, frustrations over kids, how many of us can quickly find ourselves blaming our spouse? We speak of how she doesn't submit enough, she doesn't contribute enough to the house. We tire ourselves out at work all day and we get home and we think, what have you been doing all day? We find ourselves thinking about this person that we once found to be the love of our life, an absolute beauty And we're just annoyed by them at home now. Wives, you can do the same thing about your husbands, of course. That person that once brought us so much happiness and fulfillment suddenly can seem like they're the source, the root of our frustration, the root of our anger. I'm a parent and I love love my two children and, and I can think of how often I prayed and I begged God to give us children years ago. For as I've said, my wife and I struggled with infertility for years and It was a cause of great pain and heartache. But how often now as a parent in the midst of my frustrations can I think, oh gosh, can I just have a minute of quiet? I complain to God about this precious gift. We do the same over and over again. We blame anyone and everyone else that we can possibly blame when the reality is it's our own fault. We are the fools who have chosen this sin and as a result of that folly, we suffer those immediate results. And when you consider the paradise they had experienced just a moment before, you can see just how tragic of a situation this is. Yet the tragedy has only begun to unfold. For in verses 14 through 19, we see not just the immediate effects, but the ongoing effects of the fall. We see the curse that God brings about. Verses 14 through 19, God speaks to the serpent first and then to the woman and finally to the man. We see this familiar language that describes the world in which we still live in today. In each of these curses, we see God speaking both to the function of the individual, that is the function of the serpent, the function of the wife, the function of the husband, as well as to their relationship. Both of which once would have brought happiness and fulfillment, but now bring constant frustration and annoyance and difficulties. We begin in verse 14 where God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On, the belly, on your belly you will go, the dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and Pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve believed that by taking the fruit, they would find independence from God. They would be able to walk their own path. What, what they find post-fall, however, is quite the opposite. For God's will cannot be overcome. He will use his image bearers to fill the earth. The only difference now is how frustrating that process will be. And so he tells the serpent, you will still exist. You will still crawl on your belly. I don't think there's a reference here to, say, to serpents used to having legs at one point in time. It's just speaking of this, this newfound humiliation. This new symbol of war. Ultimately, as God speaks to the serpent, he is, I believe, speaking to Satan, isn't he? And he's saying, you will still do this, you will still act, but now there will be war between your seed and the seed of the woman. This newfound relationship will be found, and ultimately, you will lose this battle, Satan. You will be crushed. As he moves on to the woman, you see God speaking also to her function, as well as to her relationship. And and so God speaks to the woman, and he says, you will still give birth. This will still be a natural function, but what will mark that function now? Horrific pain. This is an understatement, or so I've heard. We see the effects still today. We see the, the difficulty and pain that childbirth brings about, but we understand it's more than just physical pain, isn't it? It's, it's a terrifying process. For you know the life of the mother is, is in jeopardy. You know that the children can die in the process of childbirth. And so while childbirth still happens, it takes on this new sense of terror, of frustration, of death and shame. Not only that, but the, the woman's other main relationship with her husband is now frustrated. For while she was always intended to be the helper of Adam, now she is told her desire will be for her husband. The desire here speaks to her desire to rule over him. It speaks of her unwillingness to simply follow. We understand that it is at this moment that submission becomes the dirty word it is today. God tells the woman, your desire is going to be for him. It will no longer be your joy to do this. And not only that, he will rule over you. And so you see this frustration between husband and wife. Where the wife struggles with submission and the husband is not leading in the way that he's called to lead. He does so in a harsh manner at times. We certainly see the effects of that still today in broken marriages. We see that effect today in, in so many areas. And most clearly, we see the effects of the fall in that final word of the curse spoken to Adam. Where God once again speaks to the man's function, that function being of work, of tilling the ground. Something Adam was always going to do. Something that we were always created to do, and yet now what is the result of this work? It's toil. It's sweat. Because work and work as we might, we are never guaranteed the rewards. For instead of the ground producing the fruit that it once would have produced, now it will also produce thorns and thistles. Now we will see crops dry up. Now we will see people starve to death. Now we will see creation disordered as hurricanes and tornadoes come through, as things are chaotic. 
And now we will see man ultimately driven back into that same ground from which he was once created. God here speaks broadly, but we can apply any and every form of suffering that we still see today within this language. Name one concept of suffering today, and you find it here in Genesis 3. Your difficulties in marriage, Genesis 3. Your difficulties at work, Genesis 3. The mourning you are feeling because you just buried a loved one, Genesis 3. From the second that a life is conceived and is marked by that, that anxiety of whether or not the child will, will survive, whether or not the mother will be able to carry the, the baby to full term. To the second that baby is safely delivered. From that second through that entire childhood of that kid, through their own work, through their own employment, and ultimately through their death, their entire existence will be marred by this constant suffering. It is felt in minor ways. When we stub our toe on a chair, although it's not that minor, it really hurts badly. We feel it there, but we feel it as we watch a loved one buried. We've walked through this past year of COVID and seen an obscene number of lives taken early. And both believer and unbeliever alike look at that and they say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This isn't what I was promised. This is painful. This is exhausting. This is unfulfilling in all of it. We read from Genesis 3, all of it because we chose it. What a dark, tragic reality this presents. And at the point of of verse 19, I can only imagine the shame and guilt that Adam must have felt. I can only imagine how dark of a moment this must have been for Adam and the woman. For while they have not yet fully experienced the curse as God presents it, they already have begun to feel its effects. And they know they're about to be driven from the garden. And they know they're going to die. And they know it's all their fault. I don't know how difficult your life has been at times. But perhaps you found yourself in the midst of a moment that feels like you are enveloped in darkness. You are enveloped in hopelessness. Perhaps it's because of something you've done. A mistake you've made, a sin you've committed, or perhaps it's something that's been done to you. And in that moment, you feel as if you are cut off from everything and everyone. And it is tempting when we suffer through those moments to feel like that there is no hope. That there's no joy, there's no reason to go on. And if that had been the response of Adam and Eve, the response would have seemed justified. For the world, when it's properly understood, is a dark and twisted, hurtful place. Yet, as we see the story move on, we suddenly see, and in fact we've already seen, this shocking glimmer of hope. We see that come through in in verse 20 and even through the end of the chapter where both the actions of man and the actions of God suggest this isn't actually the end. They suggest that darkness can be overcome For as we continue the story, we read in verse 20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. 
Lord God made garments for skin for Adam and the wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out into the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way from the tree of life. As a child, when I read this story, when I heard this story being taught, I read it purely as a story of darkness. Purely as a story of wrath, but that is simply not the case. For what does Adam do upon hearing the curse? We read that Adam, for the first time, names his wife. We see him naming his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Why? Why would Adam do this? Shouldn't they split up at this point? You don't get much unhealthier of a marriage than you do in Genesis 3. So why are they still together? And yet, they are together. Not only that, what does Adam call his wife? Does he name her bane of my existence? Source of man's struggle? No. He names her Eve because she is the mother of the living, meaning he understands that there's still life yet to come. Adam's hopeful. And if Adam were hopeful in himself or even in Eve, that would seem quite foolish, but we must understand the source of Adam's hope is not humanity. The source remains in his creator. And so having displayed that hope, we see that the source of it, we see God's glory both in his holiness as well as in his grace. From a response to Adam's sin, God does not say, that's it, let's pack it up, let's start this one all over. No. For even in the midst of the curse, God promises that things will eventually be better. We saw that very briefly when God spoke to the serpent and said that someday the seed of man would crush the serpent's head. We see that God has already said, someday I will end this. Someday I will send a representative who will not fail like Adam has failed. He will be from my family line. He will crush the great enemy. Not only that, but we see God acting so graciously to Adam and Eve, don't we? For having observed their shameful disobedience, what does God do as he pushes them out of the garden? He provides covering for them. Not just any covering, but the skin of animals. It's a covering that was far more effective than the pathetic covering that Adam and Eve provided for themselves. It's a covering that will help protect them as they enter into the wilderness. And perhaps most importantly, it's a covering that would have signified to that earliest of audiences, the Hebrew people, it's a covering that spoke to the sacrifice. The type of sacrifice that would have to be offered to atone for the sin of God's people. You can read about it in Leviticus 7. In response to man's sin, what does God do? He provides a covering. And he tells them, someday I will provide something greater. Someday the serpent's head will be crushed. And this is why, this is why Adam can have hope. Because even as he's driven from the garden, forced to finally fulfill the calling that God has given him, he recognizes that even in the wilderness, he is under the hand of the creator. It's an incredible picture of hope. And as beautiful as it is, it just gets increasingly beautiful as the story continues for we understand that the promise that God gives was not just the promise for another Garden of Eden. 
There's the promise that God would send his own representative. He would send Jesus Christ. And we understand from passages like Hebrews 13 that it is Jesus who comes. It is Jesus who enters into the wilderness himself but stays sinless, stays pure. It is Jesus who stays sinless, stays pure, but accepts the the wrath of God upon him so that we could be forgiven. It's Jesus who pays the ultimate price in his death and yet then in his resurrection defeats that death, crushes the head of the serpent, and swings open the gates back to paradise for us. It is Jesus who was the light of the world as he's declared in John. And it is Jesus who is that glimmer of light here in Genesis 3. The hope of humanity then amidst that darkness was not the hope that humanity would get it right next. It's that God will provide the salvation that God alone can provide. And it's in that conclusion that we see both a healthy appreciation of the darkness as well as that lingering hope. And so as we consider this, unbeliever, I trust that you acknowledge and can see the pain of the world in which you live. I trust you're not blind to that. I trust that the pain has touched you. But I also trust that you can observe man's lingering hope and And the application of Genesis 3 is, I want you to ask, why is that hope there? Why does a world that is so broken still speak of justice, still speak of love, still speak of hope, still speak of restoration? It makes no sense in light of human history. The only reason why it makes sense is because we were created to have that hope. We were created in our suffering to look and find our only source of life. Unbeliever, that only source, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so turn to him today. Confess your frustration, but confess your sin to him. Obey him and he, will bring, and he will give you new life. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, we still live in a world that is dark and in a lot of pain. And a lot of times as believers, we can be guilty of saying heartless and callous things like, well, that's just the way the world is. And when the world chooses to sin, of course they're going to suffer. And we can sound so callous and uncaring And so annoyed that the world around us is continually crying out in pain. But let us not ignore the fact that there's good reason for their crying. And let us also not ignore the fact that we alone have the remedy that they so desperately need. And so believer, let us be quick not to heap more shame upon a world that's already ashamed. But let's point them to Christ who takes the shame away from us. Let's remind them that we too are shameful, left on our own right but we have a Savior who's accepted that punishment and let us be witnesses to him. In the same way, believer, let us be continually aware of our own personal sin. For the deceiver is still active and he knows your weakness. He knows where he can trip you up. Don't be so foolish as to think that you've overcome it all. Daily walk in obedience, daily cling to the gospel, daily strive to find further growth through the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And as we do so, let us always keep our eyes not on the darkness of the world, but on the light that will only continue to grow brighter. As John says in 1 John, let us eagerly await that sun's arrival again. Let us pray for that arrival to be today. Let me close this in prayer as the band comes forward. Father in heaven, what a dark and yet glorious picture we have in Genesis 3. God, sin is always foolish but it is so tempting. And God, each and every one of us have our own sinful temptations that continue to come back to us, God. And time and time again, we fall prey to it. 
thinking that this time it will be different, this time it will be better, but every time we know sin is always destructive, sin always harms, sin always separates. And so God, I pray that we might see the error of our ways. Holy Spirit, cause us to see this. Cause us to see Jesus as more beautiful than anything else. For the unbelievers who are here, God, as always, I pray for their salvation, God. We live in a world that is in so much pain and turmoil, God. And indeed, there are those here today, Lord, who are suffering greatly. But God, restore unto them the life that comes only through your Son. And as you do that, God, we pray also for you to bring that full restoration. We pray for your Son, Jesus, to return now. Please, Jesus, come back for us today. As with that desire in mind, we pray these things. Amen.